Tonight's New Testament readings can be found on page 2 in your bulletin. The first reading is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9-10. through 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The second reading is Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please join me as we pray? Father, just as we sang, we pray that you would speak to every person here. We've gathered, we've come here, and we ask to know you and to see you. In the name of your Son. Amen. Well, tonight we are going to wrap up our study on the promises of God. We spent several weeks looking at this idea of the promises that God makes. And we've looked at the foundation, the character, what those promises have to do when you're in affliction and temptation. And this evening I want to wrap it up by looking at the idea of the promises of God and mission. One of the great aspects of God's grace is that he not only forgives us, but he employs us. He not only gives us a new beginning, but he gives us a new purpose in our lives. Now, this is different than the world. I mean, in the world, uh, your boss may not fire you, but they're not going to promote you. Maybe the coach won't kick you off the team because you screwed up, but they're going to just have you ride the bench. And God basically takes people that were enemy combatants and he promotes them to first lieutenant. He gives us this important job and no small mission. In fact, could you think of a greater mission? A mission of serving the king of kings to participate in the social and spiritual renewal of the earth to be an ambassador of reconciliation, used of God to bring together people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. This is the grand purpose that every believer in Christ has been called into. Do you see your life underneath that purpose? Do you understand that to be the guiding principle? And it's a critical mission And it's one where you can be lonely. You just heard earlier in the service, a group of us visited our friends in the Mideast. And here was this small band of Christian believers among millions of people. And uh, millions of people at best that see their faith as confusing, at worst, hold it with contempt or hostility that understand conversion is not only switching religions, but actually denying your national identity. One of the pastors there basically said, you know, it's just refreshing 
that you would come and just listen to us. Many times mission groups from the states come and presume they can teach and instruct. Thank you that you're just listening. At one vulnerable point, he just said, I'm lonely. I'm lonely here. And so, we're not strangers to that idea ourselves. Maybe not at that level, but I think of a, um, a pastor I know in Panama City who uh, the hurricane has destroyed their church, most of the homes of everybody in their church, and they're still trying to account for everybody in their church. And he hadn't been on email during this because he didn't have email, and finally he just sent one and said, please don't forget me. I need you to remember me and pray for me. He's lonely. Sometimes the only thing that keeps you going in the mission when you don't have these benefits like we have to be in a room where you're hearing people sing or someone to encourage you, sometimes the only thing you have to hold on to is the promise of God, the things that he has said. And at the heart of that struggle, I think when we're struggling on the mission, and let me make it clear, I'm not just talking about going overseas. It might be God's kingdom mission, not might be, it does. It works out in your vocation, in your job. It works out in you being a neighbor. It works out you in your parenting. It works out you being a son or daughter in a family. All of this is the calling God has called us to, the purpose. And when you're wrestling with that, it can shake you to the core of who you are and what you should be doing. And this is why I'm so grateful for the passage we had read, because God basically reminds us who we are and what we've been called to do in the midst of of the mission that he has given us to do. So let's look at that briefly in the time that we have. First of all, the promise of God related to who we are. Um, That opposition I have felt at different points in my ministry, but especially in the one that preceded coming here. Um, The PCA has a campus ministry called RUF, and I was called to go and start that ministry at Harvard. Now, uh, when my wife and I left seminary, Uh, we were riding pretty high. We did well there at seminary. Um, And uh, I remember being at the final senior dessert, and the president pulled me over to the side, and he said, we're expecting great things from you. You know, those those words. uh, It's funny that you're laughing because you know me, right? And you're like, great things of Glenn? That's okay. I laughed too, but I was foolish enough to believe it for a little bit. And uh, we knew it would be difficult. We went up there. We were going to have to raise over $100,000 a year just to be there. Uh, There were no contacts, uh, student contacts. We had no official status on campus, right? We're starting from scratch. And so, you know, for those weeks before school, I worked as hard as I could to follow up on every religious interest card that the university gave me. Met with everybody who knew someone who knew someone who knew someone that might be interested in a new ministry, prayed, 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 sent prayer to the report, worked so hard on that first talk. And I went there, and three people showed up. Three people. And I'd like to tell you that after that, it grew to 100 and 200. But six years later, I often had meetings with three people. Now, I can tell you, I wouldn't trade those years for anything. What it was to be on the edge of that place, doing ministry, 
the people that we saw come to faith, the people that grew, all the wonderful things, the answered prayers. But I'll tell you, it shook me in my identity of who I was and what I was about a lot. I've often thought I probably owe Meg a counseling fee for all the things that she had to hear. But I know it shook her as well. Uh, It shook her as well. And so, uh, you know, it's oftentimes that in this battle of mission, uh, the primary challenge that sin brings or our adversary is an identity theft. This is what you see in the temptation of Jesus. If you've ever read that, you realize uh, the tempter starts each temptation off by saying what? If, If you are the son of God. He questions his identity. That small word, if, right? If you are who you think you are and say you are. It's oftentimes, those are the mini battles, the mini missions that you're fighting. Maybe you experience that right now in your job at some point in life. I was thinking about in the Harry Potter stories, you know, of course his grand purpose is to defeat the Dark Lord. But really the mini battles he faces all throughout are about his identity. It's in his head and what he's struggling with. And so Peter gives us a couple things that really help us, but I will call them mini-missions. They're sort of the mission inside the mission. And let me try to hit these. First of all, the mission of acceptance, of accepting who God has made you to be. Uh, He says here that you are a chosen race. Now, those words might seem like dangerous words, especially in light of the violence we just prayed about and heard about. You know, when a group thinks that they're chosen, when somebody thinks they're chosen, they typically do damage. And that's true in the world. You see this in majority cultures. When the majority culture has the majority, they begin to think, well, I'm here because of my superiority. And then they begin to oppress the minorities. It happens in America, happened with America with white majority culture. But there's a critical difference. The reason that God's people are chosen is not because they are majority or superior. It's actually because of their inferiority. God told Israel at the very beginning this, in Deuteronomy 7, which Peter is borrowing from. That is what Peter is echoing right here. And this is what Moses says. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Wow. Imagine hearing that. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, you can just imagine Israel getting puffed up at that point like any of us would. But then he says, but it wasn't because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of people. And all the stuff that goes along with being big, right? The money and the skills and the resources. It wasn't because of that. Why? It's because the Lord loves you and he's keeping his oath. He's keeping his promise. You know, that, that's one of the hardest things to deal with, uh, unconditional love. We really can't handle unconditional love. It undoes us. I mean, if someone just, you know, loves you despite all the ways you fail, and you say, why are you doing this? And they just say, because. Because I am. It doesn't, the Bible doesn't say that the Lord doesn't have his reasons for choosing. It just says they're not in us. And there's a whole process that you go through when you come to terms with that. Someone that unconditionally loves you. And the New Testament says the same, that God chose us when we were weak, when we were ignoble. I mean, if the, if the church has any sort of a, you know, heritage, 
The heritage is, it's basically been picked from the losers. That's what it is. But it's the best ground of acceptance, because when your acceptance is based on what you've done, it can be undone. And when your acceptance is based on what you've gained, it can be lost. But unconditional love puts you in this place where you were just loved because you were chosen because. And I think that helps us do our mission humbly. The church moves ahead with humility. How can it not? And second of all, it makes us hopeful. Because if God shows you in weakness, he's going to work power through you in weakness. This is the beautiful thing about the Christian faith. You've heard me say this before, but you know, I, I don't know if we see it in ourselves or reckon with it. The beautiful thing about being in God's world and on God's team is he doesn't just work through your strengths. He works through your weaknesses. He's working from both sides of you. I mean, this is wonderful. There's no way not to be fruitful because he's always at work. We have to embrace our weaknesses. Second of all, So the mission of acceptance. Second of all, the mission related to access. He mentions you are a royal priesthood. Now, some of you know in the Old Testament, the people that got in closest to God were the priests. Those are the only people that got the inner access to God. And yet Peter says that all of God's people are a priesthood. How could that be? Now, for those of you uh, that love Protestant history, you might know that today is Reformation Sunday. Uh, And, you know, the 31st is Reformation Day. And one of the great things about the Reformation was this idea that you don't need a priest to get to God. Actually, you do need a priest to get to God. It's Jesus the priest. You don't need a human priest to get to God. Right? You don't need a pastor to get to God. You can go directly to him. Now, our day, I think, actually has the opposite problem. And that is, we tend to believe that everybody and anybody can go to God whenever they want by virtue of just they're sincere and they're a pretty good person and God is obliged to receive me. Now, it's funny, we don't do that and we would never dare do that with a president or a CEO. We would never presume that we can just come into there and have access, but somehow we forget about that with God. We forget about the holiness of God. We fail to see that every day you and I, with our moral failures, we have forfeited access to God, just like a traitor to the state ain't going to get in to see the president. We have forfeited that access. Then how then can we be a community of priests? The book of Hebrews tells us, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... It's the fact that God sent his priest, the Son of God, to be a sacrifice for sin. To be the one that bears our failings and then grants his righteousness to us that we now, you are, all believers, are priests. You're just as legit as the high priest in the Old Testament. In fact, you are more legit than that because there is no obstruction. And what does that mean for the mission? Well, we can go to God anytime we want. Did you hear me? You can go to God anytime that you want. The God of high heaven, the God that has riches of glory, the God that is sovereign, the God, and then he says, I've been thinking more about this idea, and I'm afraid it's just going to sound obvious, but it's hitting me in a new way. We can ask him for things. We can ask him for anything. And Jesus says, 
He will answer us. Now, immediately, good Presbyterians reform people go, wait, wait, wait a second, what about those things that are part of his will? I'm going to say, stop always going there. You know, we're always worried about that. Yeah, yeah obviously, God's a big boy. Right? He's, if you ask him for something, that's a, he, yeah, he's not going to give it to you. I don't think Jesus spends his time there because he knows that's not our problem. Our problem is we come to God and we can ask him as God's spirit leads us. I'm giving you a little benefit of the doubt, me benefit of the doubt, that you're not going to go before God and ask something explicitly contrary to him. That you ask, and maybe you don't ask that great. Well, here's what you got. The Holy Spirit then swoops in and asks better for you. And even if you ask good, God still gets the chance to be God. He's going to say, yeah, I'm going to answer that prayer. I'm going to tweak it a little bit. And I'm not going to do it on Monday. I'm going to do it three years from now. You know, we don't like that. But a day is like a thousand years in the eyes of God. And I don't know if you noticed, but when he does answer the prayer, we typically go, huh, I think I was ready for that now. And so we have access to go to him anytime during the mission. Thirdly, the mission of righteousness. He says you're a holy nation. People will cram boats and risk their lives crossing borders to come to a place that they think will be free and just and righteous. People will do that. Israel was supposed to be that sort of place. Israel, if you only read the laws of Israel, you find a radical code with respect to the orphans and widows and foreigners, all that, this radical code of justice and dignity for these people that were outside, which in the ancient world had no access that way. And this idea of a holy nation certainly included that. But here's what happens. Somehow, when we move to the church, because remember, Peter is using the same language. Somehow in the church, Christians get nervous about that idea and say, well, that's social justice stuff. I mean, it was true in Israel. It's true with the new Israel, right? How can we not expect that the church shouldn't be about the issue of justice for the oppressed? It was for Israel. It is for the church. It's one of the things that people ought to be attracted to. That the poor come in here and realize that, you know, I'm treated with dignity and as an equal here, not like I am on the street. That someone that's been a victim of abuse can come here and say, actually, people don't keep it under wraps and spiritualize it. They speak it out. They name it. Or a person of every race and culture can come and feel like, you know, I'm a full partner in the church culture. It's not just come and assimilate. This is what the new church is to be, the mission of righteousness. This is why we bother having, you know, grace conferences like we just did, where we start an institute of cross-cultural mission. You heard in the Old Testament reading Isaiah 49, where the prophet is speaking of God, and God is speaking to the servant, capital S. Anybody know who the servant is? Christ, right, the Messiah. So he's speaking to the servant and he's saying, it is too light a thing. It's too small a thing for you just to reach Israel. You got to reach the whole nations. It's too small a thing. Your heart is too big. Your arms are too strong to save. Your salvation is too great. And I would say it is too small a thing for the Christian church just to reach one ethnicity, one personality, one political stripe. 
It's too small of a thing. Right? When we do that, we basically conform to the culture. Our mission of righteousness means God does this in our midst. And lastly, a mission of belovedness. He says, you are treasured possessions. We all have something that we treasure. I bet I can name something that, you know, you treasure. Well, I can't name it. You can name it. But I can name something I did. Okay. You know, this, this will be ridiculous to you. But uh, w- when I was younger, there was this plastic red rocker that I used to rock in. Okay. I still, you notice when I talk to people, I rock like that. Because I rocked in it for close to 13 years. I mean, until I was like 14, I would still rock in that chair. Vulnerability, right? Okay. And so the chair lived in Hoburg lore, right? And so I turned 50 a couple years ago. And I'm sitting there and there's a couple gifts. And my aunt brings out this big box and I open it up and it's that rocker. I said, what? And she said, well, yeah, you know, 30 years ago when your mom put it out on the... I said, there's no way we can put that out. And so no, I got it in my basement. Now, May keeps trying to throw it out. But... <laughs> I got it in my basement. It's precious to me. You might look at it and go, what? You know, we all have something that's precious. You know, you are God's little red rocker. All right? You might think silly. You might think you're nothing. But, you know, God looks upon us as a treasured possession. You know, it's an amazing, beautiful thing. And what does that mean? You know, just like you and I don't play fast and loose with the things that are precious to us. He's not playing fast and loose with your suffering. Or your circumstances or the events of your life. You're precious to him. You're honored and precious in his sight. He understands the mission's costly. One of my favorite little um, you know, um, stories in the New Testament with respect to this idea is in Acts chapter 23. So the Apostle Paul, if you know anything about him, you know he took a lot of stripes. He took a lot of suffering. In fact, no other person in the New Testament was beaten more, shipwrecked, out in the open sea. I mean, anything that could happen to someone happens to him. And you've got to imagine, sometimes it got to him. And so, basically, in Acts chapter 23, he is called, it's near the end of his life, to testify before this council. And the, Romans, the Roman guard actually intervenes because those that are his opponents there are going to tear him into pieces. It literally says that they were afraid he was going to be torn into pieces. And so they take Paul out, they deliver him, and he's sitting at night on his bed. And you've got to imagine, he's just like, maybe it's just getting to him. And Jesus shows up. It said the Lord appeared to him, and he said, take courage. Take courage. You need to keep testifying about me. He knew. Now, you might say, I'd love if God would appear to me. But you know something? That wasn't the big deal that he appeared. It didn't say he spent all night and they had a slumber party. It doesn't say that he put his arm around him for hours. It wasn't what Jesus did. It was, what, it was his presence and what he said. And you and I have the same thing. We have a living word and we have the Holy Spirit. As we move ahead in the mission. And lastly, we have his power and his presence. We go in his authority. And that means a whole lot. Because it means we go as humble people under the very same things we're trying to share with those in the world. That we're not above those things. That's hypocrisy. That's why people don't want to be part of the church. 
But it's for imperfect people. I don't know if you heard when you, uh, that last passage, it's often called the Great Commission, where Jesus resurrected, he calls the disciples onto a mountain, he's about to send them off for the big mission, right? And there's this little phrase that said, these are, now these are the 11 disciples, these are the 11 main guys, the leaders of the global church thousands of years later. And here they have the risen, resurrected Jesus before them. And he says, you know, there he's standing, and it says that some worshipped and some what? Some doubted. <laughs> some worshipped and some doubted. And I think that's so great because, you know, the mission includes the days we worship and the days that we doubt. You know? This is him. He takes us along, and we go. So we've been going. Let's keep going, but let's go with the promises of God. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for the promises you give us and the great mission you include us into. Would you help us? Help us complete what you've given each of us to do for this time in our lives. The good works that you've prepared in advance for each of us to do. And we'll trust your grace for that. In Christ's name, amen.